The following podcast contains explicit language. I agree with you that there were lots of, you know, divisive comments, especially and unfortunately about the press. We found out via tweet early this morning that Mr. Trump was had decided to cancel. When I first heard that he was tweeting about something that was on this broadcast, a number of tweets last night, I kept thinking, doesn't he have like a briefing book on ISIS to be reading at 10 yeah, o'clock? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the president-elect who trounced his opponent in the popular vote by a margin of 6.4 million when you measure the popular vote in Twitter followers who are mostly bots. Trump's megaphone is Twitter, nothing but pure distilled fear and favor on an endless loop. But just so we can tell real from fake, it's good that the president-elect uses the Twitter handle real Donald Trump, except no substitutes. So Donald Trump tweeted some typically nuanced stuff this week, calling Chuck Jones, the head of United Steelworkers 1999 in Indiana, terrible and not good for having the temerity to criticize his carrier deal. For those keeping track on a calculator, that adds Chuck Jones's name to the one bazillion four hundred thousand and seven people that Trump has now bashed by name on Twitter. On today's show, some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. Yasha Monk says it might end somewhat less poetically in the collapse of liberal democracies around the world. Back in the halcyon pre-election days, Yasha managed to write a piece about Trump's victory and what to do about it. In other words, he called it. But Monk is not scary. So even though he can spell out an extremely dark scenario for the end of the world, or at least the American experiment, he also has specific ideas of how to course correct. In a new column for Slate called The Good Fight, Yasha intends to keep up the heat on the Trump administration and show all of us how we can do the same. I'll be back soon with Yasha Monk, but first, here are the tweets. Masa SoftBank of Japan has agreed to invest $50 billion in the U.S. George business and 50,000 new jobs. Massa said he would never do this had Trump not won the election. Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but the costs are out of control, more than $40 billion. Cancel order. Did China ask us if it was okay to devalue their currency, making it hard for our companies to compete? Heavily tax our products going into their country or to build a massive military complex in the middle of the South China Sea? I don't think so. The U.S. is going to substantially reduce taxes and regulations on businesses, but any business that leaves our country for another country fires its employees, builds a new factory or plant in another country, and then thinks it will sell its products back into the U.S. without retribution or consequence is wrong. My 
My guest today is Yasha Monk. Yasha is a lecturer on government at Harvard University, a fellow in the political reform program at New America, and a fellow at the Transatlantic Academy of the German Marshall Fund. Welcome, Yasha. Thank you. Um, The um, New York Times had sort of an intellectual profile of you that says that you are typically the most pessimistic (laughs) person in the room. I was astounded to hear that the piece you wrote for Slate on November 9th was entirely and confidently, and this is November 9th, an account of how to accept Trump's victory and move on but be profoundly aware of the dangers it might pose, not only for the U.S. in the short term, but for liberal democracy writ large. I could not believe that you had written this piece. A lot of us who were struggling to file pieces on 11-8, the evening of 11-8, had assumed Hillary was going to win. We're going to write these triumphalist pieces. How in the world did you get a piece about Trump's victory up and running and coherent with no tears and stuttering in it by November 9th? I just don't know. So so I'm very tempted to say that I'm just an incredibly brilliant writer who, who wrote all of this in 45 minutes the night of the election. <laughs> um, sadly, that's not the case. Um, I was worried that Trump might win. I was, I think, more pessimistic about it than a lot of my friends. But, you know, I thought that Hillary probably would eke it out. Um, it, I gave it about a one in four chance because I don't think I'm smarter than Nate Silver and that sort of stuff. And I, I just sort of went with, with his predictions. Yeah. Um, So I thought, look, I mean, if he does win, um, it'll be really important to start thinking about what this means and how we we, we fight for saving liberal democracy over the next four years. But I also thought that if Hillary had won, it would be important to tell people how scary that moment is going to be and how hard we have to fight for the next four years to pass real policy reform and to address the anger of people so that somebody like Trump doesn't get elected. So you're telling me that you wrote this piece, you know, thinking that Hillary had a 75% chance of winning, in which case the lead of the piece would have been, yes, Hillary won. But if Trump had won, this is what we should have been afraid of. Yeah, which would have made a very confused piece. So, <laughs> Well, um, as it happens, know. it is a very unconfused piece. <laughs> let's let's uh, talk a little bit about what you said in that piece and also how it interacts with the research that mm-hmm. you've been recently publishing you start out sort of a little hedged. So you say, uh, you know, on the one hand, for all his venom, Trump is not an ideologue, which is very interesting. I mean, Trump's, you know, major work, intellectual property that he'd produced before his uh, rise to power was The Apprentice. Hmm. The Apprentice is no Mein Kampf. <laughs> and, uh, and do you still think that's true? He's no ideologue. It's funny to think of t- Donald Trump's oeuvre. I've never quite. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly well. It's um, a lot of hours of TV. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, it is quite a view of. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that three or four years ago, I was starting to be worried about how liberal democracy is doing. But the one thing that I found comforting is the fact that there wasn't really a coherent ideological alternative to it. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a copy that I've never published on sort of like, well, look. Um, what are people going to do? They're not going to emulate Singapore. It's too small and sort of irrelevant. They're not going to emulate China. It's quite successful in certain ways, but it's so ideologically confused. You know, like Western liberal countries are not going to turn to Islamist theocracies, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no real alternative. Well, I think over the last four or five years, a real alternative has actually come together. There's now an illiberal international that goes all the way from Vladimir Putin to Viktor Orban in Hungary to um, Kaczynski in Poland and a whole bunch of other places. 
And they have a pretty coherent vision of what they want out of politics. They want a politics in which there's a populist strongman who speaks for the people, who's really democratically elected and, and, and democratic in the sense that he really channels the energy of the people, mm -hmm. but who excludes a lot of people from political consideration, who does not care about ethnic and religious minorities, and, mm -hmm. and in fact is trying to show that they're not a real part of the nation. Mm -hmm. And who undermines all kinds of liberal um, protections and so on because they stand in the way of expressing the people's will. So there is now an ideological alternative to liberal democracy, which is quite scary and very unpleasant, but but pretty coherent. And Trump doesn't have that, right? Like people like Orban came into power and they wanted to get there. Trump has a lot of the same instincts, but I don't think that he's sort of consciously, intellectually aware of them. And so... We don't know where it'll lead. It might be that his instincts will lead them in that direction and that he'll talk to these people. And he's already invited Viktor Orban of Hungary for a state visit, which mm -hmm. is really scary. <laughs> um, but it might also be that, that, that he just is hyperactive and wants to tell people you're fired and, and doesn't really figure out his stuff. I want you to tell me something about the word illiberal. You know, you say there is an ideological alternative and that might be something like illiberal democracy. What is illiberal democracy? And and that, that gets me wondering what liberal democracy is. Right. Why uh, don't you tell us about both of those things? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll even throw in a, a third, even more confusing term, but I'll build up to it. Please. So, I, listen, um, I think that we need to realize to what extent, we always say liberal democracy, and the yeah. clue is in the name. There's two elements to this. Um, but we always think that they somehow naturally go together. And, and they really don't. They're two separate elements. And the democratic element, I think, is most easily understood as just a bunch of electoral institutions that translate popular views into public policies, mm -hmm. right? And the liberal element is, you know, stuff that's very familiar from the Bill of Rights and all of that, right? It's, it's, it's respect for the rule of law, for due process, and especially for the rights of unpopular minorities, mm -hmm. um, that the Amish or Muslims or gay people get the same protections. Mm -hmm. um, and my fear about this political moment is that these two things are increasingly pulling apart, that a lot of people are getting less and less liberal, that they're getting less tolerant of minorities, that they want uh, a, a sort of strongman leader, mm -hmm. and that you see our political system being bifurcated into these two new forms. Mm -hmm. Illiberal democracy or democracy without rights on the one side, where you have this sort of tribune of the people. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you have what I would call undemocratic liberalism or rights without democracy, where political elites say, well, you know what, if, if the people are crazy enough to elect Donald Trump and people like him to office, perhaps we should try and insulate the political system more and more from popular inputs, mm -hmm. try and make mm -hmm. more and more decisions technocratically and so on. And, and so I think that's the danger, that, that, that we end up being torn between these two extremes and that they end up being mutually reinforcing. Of all the many paradoxes in uh, Trump's incipient presidency, um, one of them is the fact that he's an, an unpopular populist, that he, <laughs> you know, that he really did, you know, he was soundly defeated in the popular vote. And I don't just say yeah. this to make us feel better. I, I think there are actual consequences or implications for that. You know, what is it up to? 2.5 million people. That's like all of northern New England, where I'm <laughs> from. Um, and uh He's he really is uniquely disagreeable, as one psychologist <laughs> said in, in the Atlantic. You right. know, he's not. It's very. He has an anti charisma. He just doesn't look like a populist. Well, you know that, that's one of the hopes is. Uh, you know, you say he's 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 just not agreeable. Um, George Packer in his profile of Angela Merkel for the New Nation yes. uh, for, for, for for the New Yorker a couple of years ago uh, cited this German journalist Georg Dietz in saying that one of the reasons for Merkel's success is that she's minimally invasive. 
mm. that she just sort of doesn't bother people. I don't especially like her, but she's just, you know, like, like you can, you can have her on TV all day long and it doesn't annoy you. Yes. That's and right. one of my hopes is that Trump is maximally invasive, right? That, yeah. that even people who like him at the moment or, or who enjoy, you know, him, destroying the political system in a certain kind of way or like, you know, changing everything. Like after two or three more years of having him on TV every damn time, we'll just be sick of it, right? So yeah. so that's one hope. And obviously it's a hope that I don't think America is Trump's America, but most Americans don't like this man. His approval ratings are still well below 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he is trying to impose, to make America into something that, that it's not. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a great hope. But... Populist leaders in the past have often been elected without majority consent. Yeah. And they've still managed to transform their countries. Mm. And you can go to sort of less extreme examples like Poland, mm. where a government that was elected um, with a plurality of a vote in a low turnout election, claiming to be pretty moderate, has radically undermined liberal democracy over the course of the last year. So now, and you can you yeah. can also even look at you know Vladimir Putin who was appointed when nobody really knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Um so so I think it does reassure me a little bit, but I don't think it tells us that that bad things can't come out of this. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. And and so by referring to Poland, you're touching on a little bit um the um this forthcoming paper you have that is sort of broken down in the New York Times in this article, How Stable Are Democracies? Warning Signs Are Flashing Red by Amanda Taub. So tell me about warning signs are flashing red. What are the warning signs? Tell us how it's all going to go down. Tell us about end times. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not at the end times quite yet. <laughs> um, well, listen, I think political scientists have been really complacent for a long time. You know, it's remarkable how stable, wealthy liberal democracies have been over the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And so I think we've been lulled into a false sense of security. And, and the way that they've tended to think about it is with this theory of democratic consolidation. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, democracies aren't that stable, but then they consolidate. And once they're consolidated, it's really one-way street. It's become the only game in town, and at that point, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that phrase, the only game in town, is, is really big in this literature. It's a weird phrase. Right? <laughs> it is, is um, it, does it exist in German? Uh, oh, I don't, I don't know. I, I, get, I, mean, I can translate it for you, but I mean, I, I the read only game in town is really because right, I think so we got London or something. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but 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 we are starting to think: Well, is democracy still the only game in town? Is mm. it actually true that there's no real alternatives? And and so with my colleague, Roberto Foa, we started to look at a couple of straightforward measures of that. And logically, what, what does it mean to be the only game in town? Well, it's going to mean three things, right? But most people really support democracy. They're like, mm-hmm. yes, of course I want to live in democracy. Of course, that's what matters to me. Mm-hmm. That people aren't open to alternatives. That they're not like, well, you know what? Let's play this other game. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's have a dictatorship or something. And third, that there aren't major political parties or movements who flout democratic norms in deep ways and undermine it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we set out to look at each of these measures. And what we found surprised us and was was, was really striking. So um, thinking about support for democracy, mm-hmm. um, it used to be in the United States, um, looking at older people born in the 1930s, 1940s. But over two thirds say, yes, it's essential to me to live in a democracy, 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Once you look at younger people, millennials born since 1980, it's less than one third. Mm-hmm. It's even more striking when you look f- to support for alternatives mm-hmm. to to democracy. So, 
know, pretty extreme question. Like, do you think that army rule is a good system of government? Army rule. Wow. Yeah. And so 20 years ago, about one in 16 Americans said yes. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's one in six. And among this is martial law. This is the National Guard in town. Right. I mean, who knows what, yeah. what they have in mind when yeah. they answer that question, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's always the difficulty with, with those kind of service. But the fact that it's gone up so much is really concerning. Yes. When you only look at young and affluent people in America, yeah. it's gone from 6% to 36%. That's a six-fold increase over 20 years, right? So, so I think, you know, you really have to think through how to interpret that, what that means. Yeah. But, but that difference, that increase is, is really striking. You know, it's, uh, is it possible that those millennials and even so many of us, I mean, I, it's, I'm still, I still believe that the prime mover in the past 20 years has been digitization. And, you know, if it's now 4 billion of us who are on the web and, and on online, and certainly the generation you described, the digital natives, is it possible that they feel like they have so much popular democracy and opportunities for um, identity creation and, and you know, would-be liberalism um, online that the uh, there's something like archaic and creaky about democracy at the level of government? I mean, you know, I've been making these calls to my to Congress and you know, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot easier to tweet than <laughs> right. it is to wait online. I'm one person talking to my one of two senators office through an aide, through whatever, leaving a message to try to be heard and then try to have that person probably not agitate for my view and then try to persuade every one of my friends to do it every hour. Right. right. Or I can get on Twitter. And, you know, if you're used to and accustomed to getting on Twitter and making a case for your, for Standing Rock or making a case for uh, some particular alt-right idiom, then, you know, maybe it looks like democracy is inadequate and efficient and happens somewhere else, Yeah. you know, and why not have, we've already got a much purer and, you know, form of democracy than could ever have been imagined by the founding fathers. No, I think, I think that's right in two ways, right? The first is simply that, we live in institutions that were invented in the 18th century right? and which were technologically savvy then, right? I mean, the best way of conveying a voice was to go to a voting booth that's somewhere within reach of where you lived and uh, then they like conveyed it to Washington and you had representatives, you know, who would like travel there and so on, right? Yeah. Um, and now we live in a world where there would be so many easier ways of doing that online and, and, and ways in which people in their own private life can feel the efficacy of something they do, right? I mean, you, you hit like on Facebook and like the button lights up and yes. the number goes up by one, right? Yes, yes. Whereas you do your paper ballot once every two or four or six or whatever years and, and you know, somehow somebody somehow counted that night, but then like the election is called before like your vote is even counted if you're in the wrong state. <laughs> that's you know, like, right. Yes, that's um, right. So, 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 yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a real problem if people feel disenchanted about it. I think there's even a deeper thing to that, which is... We live in a system that in some ways wasn't meant to convey popular views into public policies. Mm -hmm. When you read the Founding Fathers, um, they say, well, the point of representatives is that they purify the popular will, mm -hmm. that they stop it in many respects. And then we sort of, and they explicitly obviously said, we don't live in a democracy, we live in a republic. Democracy mm -hmm. is terrible. Yeah, that's right. And then we started to re-describe and reinvent the system over the course of the 19th century as a democracy. And we could do that in part because there was no technological alternatives. We could say, well, this is a democracy. This is the obvious way to express the people's will because what else are we going to do? We can't assemble all Americans in like some superdome and have them travel thousands of miles. That's not possible. Yes, that's right. right. And now it is actually possible. You could have direct <laughs> democracy. Nobody yeah. wants that, right? I mean, like nobody wants to like log in and and vote on the, you know, subhouse appropriations, whatever, whatever, whatever bill. Yes. 
Um, but I think people realize at some Trump. deep level. <laughs> I mean, at least right. of all, Donald Trump doesn't yeah, want to do it himself, yeah. so why should we? Right. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but never has a president had that little interest in policy or, or most things. Really. Um, but but I think that's that's a problem that people, you know, they don't want to have direct democracy, but they realize that, that, that the claim of the system somehow allows them to decide their own fate for themselves is right. an empty claim. But that's not the case. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I want. I'm jumping around a little here, but um, tell. So Poland is a is a is an interesting example. I mean, you know, to me, Poland seems like rather than have um, suffer from a, uh, you know, and you you may disagree, but rather than see sort of deconsolidation or, or its liberal democracy fall apart, it may be never quite consolidated. Because as you said, we have a story in the West we like mm-hmm. to tell ourselves about onward and upward with liberal democracy. And that's, and that everyone who, who walked, walked in darkness will one day see a light. Um, it's post-empire thinking, but it's in some ways with Poland, it seems like saying, but this colony seemed so British not long ago. And, you know, uh, the, how are they deconsolidating from mm. that parliamentary system that was so soundly in place during empire? But, um, you know, did uh, did Poland ever truly consolidate its liberal democracy or did it was it always already falling apart when it joined the EU? Right. I mean, uh, I think Poland was never quite as consolidated as some people thought, but it's still a, a really striking case right? Yeah. because of all of the post-communist countries. This is the country that did the best. And political scientists certainly believed that it was consolidated. Um, yeah. Because on their metrics, there was really, there's reason to be very optimistic. Mm-hmm. It was a country in which um, the economy had grown very rapidly and it had grown above a threshold that is considered safe. So like Argentina in 1989 is the richest liberal democracy to have ever collapsed and had about $15,000 right. GDP per capita at the time. Yeah. And Poland was was above that. Its GDP had increased, you know, sixfold since 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 the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Um, it was a system which you have a really rich civil society with very good mm-hmm. newspapers, actually. Gazette Wyborcza, for example, is an excellent paper that's very critical of, 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 of governments, does good investigative reporting. Um, so you have all of those kinds of things in place. And so, and you have had lots of turnovers of government for free and fair elections. Yeah. And so a lot of political scientists are like, no, this country is safe. It's fine. And then last year, you got this figure Kaczynski, who again has certain ideological affinities with Trump, even though he's much more self-conscious about what he's trying to do. And very rapidly, he started to undermine the independence of state institutions, politicizing, you know, the tax authorities, mm-hmm. um, really taking power away from the Supreme Court in a way that it's become a complete political stooge, mm-hmm. um, making the state television program into just a straightforward propaganda arm, mm-hmm. making life very difficult for political opponents. This has gone very, very rapidly over the course of the last year. And so what we argue in the study is to say, well, 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 this is a puzzle, right? Like what mm. this country that everybody has been saying is so wonderful and successful now has moved away from democracy very rapidly. How could this be? Mm-hmm. And when you go back and look at what we call sort of our early warning system, yeah. um, these indicators of democratic deconsolidation, mm-hmm. um, you see that they were flashing red, that, 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 that 10, 15 years ago, Anti-system parties were already pretty strong in Poland. That mm-hmm. polls were much more likely than a lot of the neighbors to say that they didn't care about democracy. That they were open to alternatives to democracy. Okay, and so, a very open mind about yes, about open a, mind about ideas. dictatorship. Yes, it's a lovely thing to have. Um, we, we all might have to one day. Um, <laughs> but but so so look, Poland and the United States are different countries, right? You can't say oh because that happened in Poland. After these warning signs, it'll happen in the United States. But there's not a lot of 
historical analogy for the deep disenchantment of democracy we have today. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take a few cases that are somewhat similar seriously as warning signs. Um, the last thing I, I want you to do is just go over this once again, uh, you know, extremely, um, I don't know, sort of brilliantly on the fly list of ideas of things we might do. And you, again, wrote this on November 9th. You, hmm. We had just gotten uh, the news. The troubles had just begun about how to do the right thing um, in the face of the peril represented by by Donald Trump. Yeah, Um Maybe just go over some of those ideas. I know the right. first thing you say is we accept Trump's victory. Um, uh, and then we also have to realize that he poses a, a real and deep threat to the survival of liberal democracy. Yeah. And that we're no longer in ordinary political times where, you know, there's real stakes, but we can be assured of the survival of our political system. We have to realize that there's some chance, it's not guaranteed, but some chance that his administration will really in a systematic way, undermine the neutrality of state institutions, mm -hmm. make it very dangerous to oppose, to oppose Donald Trump, um, put newspapers under real pressure, put some of the owners of newspapers potentially under pressure for regulators and so on with other businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what we need to do now is, is, is a number of things. We need to monitor what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's a really important task because we need to build a case. You know, if some uh, agent of the IRS in Texas is coming under pressure to investigate uh, anti-Trump uh, businesses mm -hmm. or NGOs, um, foundations, um, we need somewhere to record this. Because it might just be a coincidence when somebody gets audited, but if yes. suddenly all of these places get audited, that's a real concern. Yeah. Um, we need a place where a low-level employee of the Department of Justice um, can turn to and say, hey, we're being told that anybody who's arrested in anti-Trump protest has to be given the maximum penalty. Um uh, and so on, right? So just monitoring what's going on is the first step. The second step, I think, is actually explaining to people both the basic principles of liberal democracy and some of the ways in which Trump's actions violate them. So when, for example, as he did uh, about a week ago, he mentions on a phone call with the Argentinian president, hey, what about my stalled building project in Buenos Aires? Right. Um, we need to explain to a broader audience, not an audience that listens to political podcasts like this one, and <laughs> you know, like, but but people who who are sort of a little more disengaged from the political system. Yeah. Um, okay. What is it actually that that is bad about this? Why is this such a problem? Mm -hmm. The third thing we have to do is to reach out um, across the political aisle and build a real coalition. Um, including with with moderate Republicans and and conservatives, so that if there comes a moment when Trump really you know just stands in the rose garden and says I'm going to ignore this ruling by the Supreme Court, I mm -hmm. don't care. Right. They say, hang on, you cannot do that. Um, we have to preserve this liberal democratic norm. You say you say thing, there may be strange bedfellows there. We may yeah. see you know it may suddenly be like arch libertarians together with uh, you know Bill Clinton. Yeah, and one way of thinking about this is that. These political differences between us are really important, right? I have very mm -hmm. big differences to moderate Republicans on on health policy and all yeah. kinds of things, but but we now need to fight to to achieve a political world in which those differences are again the most salient difference. For yeah. now, the most salient political difference is: Are you willing to undermine the norms of liberal democracy? And we together need to fight for a world in which we can again be political opponents because you have a different view of Obamacare than I do. Yeah, that's right. I think, isn't that, Rene Girard, like the difference that makes a difference? The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the and, one. and just the last thing very quickly is that, um, you know, if we're just going to go and run against Donald Trump in much the way that Hillary Clinton did by saying, you know, he's really horrible. I don't think we're going to win. We need to point out he's horrible. We need to point out how dangerous he is. But we also need to have a positive political vision. Yeah. And that needs to 
address some of the ways in which our system has not performed well over the last 20, 25 years, but also express what it is that's worth preserving about that system. So we need a new liberal idea of what to strive for and what our political program is. I've been speaking to Yasha Monk. He's a lecturer on government at Harvard University and has a new column on Slate called The Good Fight. It's great. Be sure to check it out. Thanks so much for joining me, Yasha. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. John D. Domenico is always and forever our voice of Donald Trump. And Jacob Weisberg is the head honcho of this whole operation. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. While I'm not mandated to do this under the law, I feel it is visually important as president in no way have a conflict of interest with my various businesses. Hence, legal documents are being crafted, which take me completely out of my business. Oh, shit. I will get through this completely. Here we go.